of our Praying with Paul series. This Lent, we are looking at some of the notable prayers of Paul from his letters. Um, We are leaning on a book written by Dr. D.A. Carson um, by the same title, Praying with Paul. Um, It's worth a read if you have a chance to look at it. Um, But we've seen last week, and now we'll see again this week, that Paul tends to pray for different things than you and I sometimes pray for. Um, His priorities in prayer are a little bit different from yours and mine. But the danger, maybe a danger, in an exploration like this one that we're in this Lent is that we would engage in it merely for our own sakes. And here's what I mean. That we would just be like, you know what, I'm not good at prayer right now. I want to get better at prayer. And so I, during this series, need to focus on how I can grow in it and work on it. Uh, There's just a lot of I and me in that. And I think there's three maybe subcategories to an I-focused approach to this series. One would be that some of us view a series like this or view our prayer lives as like part of a, a, a set of attributes in a video game, right? So you've got a video game and you've got all these attributes and you're like, you know, I'm like a 92 in reading the Bible right now. That's going really well. But I'm like a 68 in prayer. So I really got to get that attribute up, right? So some of us view our Christian walk that way. Others of us maybe view it like a gas tank. And we say, well, I really like when I feel filled up. And when, when, I'm, when I'm praying a lot, I feel filled up. Right now, I'm kind of in an empty place. So hopefully during this series, I'll be able to get filled up again. Or maybe a third group of us, we view it like it's a frequent flyer program on an airline. They're like, you know, prayer is boring. But God, I know, will give me rewards if I do it more. He'll bless me, right? So I hope that in this series, these preachers can motivate me to start praying again because I know I need some blessings from God, right? I think, even if we aren't so crass as to say it that way, sometimes those three kind of attitudes underlie what it is that's going on when we say, okay, I'm going to get better at prayer during this season of my life. Um, there's something legitimate in all three of them, right? But, but they're all self-driven in the end. I think they maybe come from this theology in part, at least. They come from a theology that goes something like this. It's a theology of prayer that says God's in control of everything. He does whatever he wants anyway. And so if I pray, it's not going to change anything. Prayer is really just for my own sake. It's because my heart changes when I pray, right? Anybody heard a theology of prayer that goes something like that? Yeah, and some of us maybe have been influenced by it. There's another theology of prayer that says, yeah, God is in control and he does what he wants, but when we look at scripture, people pray and things happen. Exodus 32, God says, I'm going to destroy this people. Moses says, Lord, please don't. And God says, okay, I won't, right? Throughout scripture, we see God, people praying and circumstances change. God moves in response to prayers, and he acts on on the behalf of people who have prayed to him and interceded for others. And so that theology of prayer, that second theology, starts to, it's an improvement, right? It starts to move us from just a me focus to my prayer to now I'm thinking about myself and I'm thinking about God. But what we're going to see in our text today is that Paul actually has a third motivator, a third thing driving his, him to his knees in prayer. And um, it's a third constituency that he has in mind, not just himself, not even, if we can say it, 
not even just God to the exclusion of all else, but he's actually thinking about the people whom he's praying for. He has a profound seeking in his prayers of what's best for the people he's praying for. I mean, you saw it throughout the text that David just read. Hopefully you're still open there. Um, How many times the word you came up? What thanksgiving can we return to God for you? All the joy we feel for your sake. We may see you face to face. May the Lord make you increase. Um, May he establish your hearts blameless in holiness. On and on and on, right? What's, What's driving Paul to his knees isn't just that he'd be filled up. It isn't even just that God would be glorified, although that is central, I'm sure, in his prayers. It's also driven by an intense love for the people whom he's praying for. Um, and he's seeking their best. And so that's why that's our big idea today. It's going to be this. May our prayer lives be shaped by a passion for God's people. And we've worded that as a prayer. May our prayer lives be shaped by a passion for God's people. That's what we'll be looking for today uh, in God's word. So let's go before him in prayer right now as we ask for his help toward this end. Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. Lord, we want our prayers to be driven by a love, a passion for your people. And so during this time in your word, let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Some of you, I'm aware, this morning are here, and you don't know Jesus. You don't have a relationship with him. And so I just want to say at the outset that some of what we talk about today, just just because of the nature of this particular sermon text, it's going to feel like sort of an intramural discussion that we're having here, like from one Christian to another, um, how to love one another well in prayer. Uh, But I think that if you listen in on this conversation we're having, we're so glad you're here, you'll hear some, you might might raise some questions for you about this Christian faith. And we want you to know that we as a church here at North Sub, we're a people that want to engage with you on those questions that you have about the faith, and uh, we would love to do so. There's three particular questions in this text that I want us to look at today that I think are raised by the text, questions about our own prayer lives. So we'll take the three questions in turn. First one's in verse 9, and the question is, how much joyful thanksgiving do we offer for the growth of other Christians? How much joyful thanksgiving do we offer for the growth of other Christians? Remember the occasion for the thanksgiving that Paul offers here in verse 9 when he says, What thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy we feel for your sake before our God? As David told us before his reading, the occasion is that these people have kept the faith. They still love one another. They still have fond feelings for Paul and his team, even though Paul and his team had to leave them abruptly. Uh, very early into their time there. So despite all the opposition this church has experienced, despite all the things that have come up that could have threatened to shipwreck their faith, instead of being shipwrecked, they are standing firm in the faith. And that's why Paul is overjoyed here. He's elated, and he's not even afraid to show it here in verse 9. He is basically saying, God, you've what can I do to thank you? You've made me, these people have made me so happy that I don't even know how to begin to thank you, God, for how happy they've made me. But you know, not everybody is that way. Not everybody actually loves good news. You realize that? I mean, you all are on social media, so you know the kind of person that I'm talking about. It's the kind of person that um, their whole social media existence is based on their... Um, righteous denouncing of bad news that happens, right? It's like they relish it, relish an opportunity to get up on their podium and 
denounce somebody or something. So if a church is growing, you don't hear from them. If, if a pastor's ministry is bearing fruit, silence. If a group of Christians are growing in love and holiness, you don't hear anything from them. But when a pastor falls into sexual sin, or when a church has to shut its doors, or when a group of Christians falls on hard times for any number of reasons, now these people come out of the woodwork, right? And they get up on their pedestal, and they um, just say they feel so burdened that they just had to share something, right? And they start... Uh, analyzing all the factors in a very somber way that they feel led to this great tragedy. Um, You've seen it. Um, What I want to make sure we see here is that that's not Paul. Don't get me wrong, though. You know, Paul can denounce sin when he needs to. But look at what Paul does when he sees good things happen, when he hears a good report. Paul it responds with joyful celebration, right? He tells the world about it. He gets on Twitter and tells the world not just about the bad things, but he tells the world about what he sees in people's growth, and not only what he sees in people's growth, but he tells the world about the joy he's personally experiencing as a result of the growth he's seeing in those others. But some of us maybe feel a tension. We feel a tension when we get excited about somebody's growth in the faith, and the tension is this. Some believers are constantly praising everyone all the time, right? We've known people like that. They're just constantly, like, loudly, publicly praising, showering praise on everybody that they meet, right? And it's really endearing at first. And over time, you start to, is this really genuine? Because they do this all the time. Is this just flattery? But then on the other side, you've got Christians who never, ever compliment anybody because they don't want them to get a big head, right? And so maybe you feel some tension. You wrestle with, well, what do I do? Am I, should I be complimenting people more? Should I be complimenting people less? It feels like just striking some kind of vague middle ground doesn't feel that great either. Uh, when I'm just kind of arbitrarily picking, sometimes I'll compliment you, sometimes I won't. So how do we, do, how do we deal with that? I think we see in this text today how Paul deals with that, what his answer is to this tension. Uh, look what happens um, here and what his response is. He doesn't butter these people up in verse 9. At the same time, he doesn't withhold his praise, right? Here's what he does. And this is his pattern throughout his letters, not just here. Paul first thanks and praises God for you and what he's seen in your life. And then he turns around and goes to you and tells you a report of what he's been thanking and praising God for on your behalf. Right? So I'll say that again. That's Paul's pattern. He first thanks and praises God for you and what he's seeing happen in your life. And then he goes to you and says, hey, here's what I've been thanking and praising God for that I've seen in your heart. You see why that's so genius, why it's so wonderful? It stops us from becoming full of ourselves when we hear it because Paul isn't even technically praising us, right? He's actually praising God for what he's seen in us. But at the same time, we are encouraged by it, much more so than if he would have kept silent because wow, Paul noticed that God was choosing to use me in this given uh, situation, right? So some of you really like practical advice. You like when in our sermon we give you like, here's a practical step to take. So here's one for you. Uh, What if we made a habit of being the sort of people who did this? And we just made a regular habit of praising and thanking God for what we saw in each other's lives and then making a point later on to go back to that person and tell them, hey, here's what I've been seeing in you that I've actually been thanking God for. 
It's not an option, it doesn't seem. It doesn't seem like it's an option for Paul to sit back detached like some great man who sits on his chair and then Timothy comes with a report and he just gives like a silent head nod and approval, right? This is a person in Paul who has a joy about real people that he loves that just has to burst out of him. He can't help but let it burst out of him. The only question is how it's going to burst out of him. Um, I know there's many Trinity students here who are planning on going into ministry, so let me just speak to you for just a moment. It's really important that we see here in this text that Paul is not somebody who sees people as an obstacle to what he really wants to get done, right? That's not where he's at. He's not saying, you know, if I didn't have, if I didn't have to spend all this time with people, I could spend more time doing what I really want to do, like wrestling with these lofty ideas that really intoxicate me. He's not just longing for the day when he can hire a bunch of assistants to go spend time with broken people so that he can develop his book writing ministry. Paul's whole ministry is shaped by people and their needs and his desire to minister to real, actual, live people. Uh, We see it with his relationships with unbelievers. Sometimes take a look at the first few verses of Romans chapter 9. It's astonishing what Paul says there. He uh, doesn't have like a cold, calculated resignation toward people who don't believe. He says he has this great sorrow, this unceasing anguish in his heart for his Jewish brothers and sisters who haven't met Jesus. And then he goes so far to say one of the most astonishing statements in the whole Bible, I think. Paul says in Romans 9, I would that I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers who don't know Jesus. He wishes sometimes that he could actually be cut off from Jesus, experience separation from God, if that meant that his Jewish brothers and sisters could experience faith in Christ. What an incredible statement. And the question is, have we ever experienced any kind of love like that for anybody? But Paul doesn't just have this love for unbelievers. We're seeing in our text today that he has that same deep, profound love for believers. It's a, it's a love that's unable to be measured. He's, he's unable to be measured in his response to it. He's just bursting with joy. When we were little kids, we were filled with life and wonder. My mom tells me that about myself. Just every new thing, eyes wide, just loving, loving life, you know. And then somewhere along the way, we learned that we're supposed to be more calculated, more detached, more cool about things. Um, but those of you who have gotten to spend time around little ones from time to time, you realize how refreshing it is that they haven't learned yet to be cool and detached and prideful. And I just really think that that's, that's how I'm picturing Paul when he gets this report from Timothy that the Thessalonians have remained in the faith. Like, he doesn't have those restrictors that we have on ourselves that we're, where we're so self-conscious. I just picture Timothy coming to him and Paul rushing to the door to see Timothy and just grabbing Timothy by the shoulder and saying, what's the news? What's the news on the Thessalonians? I can't bear it anymore. What's the news? And when Timothy gives the good report, I just picture Paul just like crying out, yes, yes, praise God. They're still in the faith. He just can't help but burst out about it because these are real people in life and death. Eternity is at stake. He can't be reserved about that. So that's the first question. How much joyful thanksgiving do we offer for the growth of other Christians? Second question is this, much shorter in verses 10 and 11. How connected are our prayers for people and our serving of those people? 
So how connected are our prayers for people and our serving of those people? Again, verses 10 and 11 say, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. The bottom line in these two verses is that Paul's glad to pray for these people. He's glad to be helpful by writing this letter to them, but he's not actually content with just praying and just writing them letters. Like, in other words, it's not like Paul's sitting there, and when he goes and prays for the Thessalonians, and when he writes them this letter, then he turns around and checks the box that says Thessalonians. Like, okay, I'm good with them. I did my duty with regard to them. I don't need to worry about the Thessalonians for a while. I'll revisit them in a few more weeks when they need some more help. It's actually that as he sits down to pray for them, and as he writes them this letter, he actually is growing in his desire to be with them. He's wanting to be with them more and more, the more he prays for them and the more he writes with them, so that he can do some person-to-person ministry and look them in the eye and have some face-to-face time with them. So that raises the question, why hasn't he done it yet? Why is he not there? Why has he not gone back to Thessalonica yet? Uh, And the answer to that actually is in 1 Thessalonians, back in chapter 2. In verse 18, um, it says that Satan somehow is blocking Paul's way. That's his understanding of the situation. Um, And there's any number of ways we can understand that. But for our purposes this morning, maybe the important thing to see is that is how Paul reacts when there's a closed door to what he wants to see happen, right? He really wants to be with these people. The door is closed because Satan's blocking the way. How does he respond? Some of us would go say, okay, well, then I got to find an open door to go somewhere else and minister to somebody else. But that's not where Paul goes with it. He actually prays, Lord, kick down the door. I really, really want to be with these people. You're bigger than Satan. Lord, get Satan out of the way so I can go minister with these people. I love praying for them. I love writing letters to them, but I want to be with them face to face again. Lord, clear the way for it to happen. In other words, he wants God to provide for the needs of the Thessalonians, but he's not indifferent to how God will do it. He actually has a preference that God would do it through him in face-to-face type of ministry. Um, So we'll keep the second point short. Um, There's details here in the text in verses 10 and 11 that I'd love to be able to go into, how Paul's praying to Jesus, the same Jesus he used to think was a fraud, how Paul prays night and day for these people. We could look in his letters at how he has regular set prayer times in that pattern. Um, But what I really want to just do with the second point is just drive home this question that you see on the screen um, about our prayers and their connection to our service to people. The question worded another way is, when we pray for people, are we open to God prompting us to actually act on behalf of those people? Right? As we're praying, are we open to God stirring our heart up to do something about the thing that we're praying for? Um, Dr. Carson, who wrote the series that uh, this book is based on, I met with him once to discuss a problem that I was having, gave me great advice. I was so grateful, moved on with life, you know, put into practice the things that uh, he had wisely guided me in and thought that that would probably be the last I heard of him, but he's traveling all over the world. That's great. But then three weeks later, I get an email from him saying, hey, Tim, I was praying for you this morning and thinking about the situation we talked about. How is it going? And what, what can I be praying for now? It's just so refreshing, isn't it, when you see somebody who practices what they preach? Like, I've read his book where he says, hey, here's what Paul does. He prays for people, but then that actually moves him to want to do something to serve those people. And here's Dr. Carson. He prayed for me, 
and then he turned around and emailed me to see if he could minister to me any further. Um, the moral of the story is we need to be a people who are ready to participate in the answer, in being the answer to the prayer that we are praying for other people. Like God might want you to be part of the answer to the prayer you're praying, and we can all do that. We can all think of ways that we can be part of that answer. Um, it would be foolish for us to just jump into those, doing those things without praying. But it would also be foolish for us to just always pray for people and not be open to how God might be wanting us to do something, do something about it. So our first question again, how much joyful thanksgiving do we offer for the growth of other Christians? The second one, how connected are our prayers for people and our serving of those people? And then third and finally, to what degree are our prayers for others' growth informed by what's ahead of us? To what degree are our prayers for others' growth informed by what's ahead of us, like in the future? Verses 12 and 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So when Paul's praying for the Thessalonians, he has this future scene in mind. The future scene is Jesus coming back again with the holy ones, or the saint, it says saints there, literally it's the holy ones. And that's stunning because we already saw the verses from Zechariah earlier in the service in which these same words are talking about the Lord God. And now Paul takes these words from written hundreds of years before Jesus and applies them to Jesus himself. Here's the comparison from Zechariah 14 and 1 Thessalonians 3. In verse 5 of Zechariah 14, it says, Then the Lord my God will come on that last day and all the holy ones with him. And Paul says the Lord Jesus is going to come with all his holy ones, literally. Um, in other words, Paul's saying that the same Lord God that was being talked about back in Zechariah is our Lord Jesus, as we've come to know him as he's been since revealed uh, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so this gives us a thread that ties together last week and this week, actually. Last week's sermon, you might remember, was uh, from 2 Thessalonians, and it was a prayer that had an eternal focus. It was eternity in mind, praying uh, with the end in mind as we pray. And then this week, we're seeing Paul pray with this passion for people. And we might be tempted to think these are just two different aspects of prayer that just sit separately from one another, but I think it's really more than that. I think now that we're two for two in seeing Paul praying in light of eternity, and we're seeing his deep passion for people, I think these are really, really connected, and here's how they're connected. How do we pray with eternity in mind without giving a thought to the people who are going to be affected by that eternity, right? In other words, when we're praying with an eternal perspective, thinking about the end, thinking about Christ's return, we inevitably are going to think about the people who are going to have to stand before God and give an account on that day. But on the flip side, when we're praying for people, if we're really, really leaning into our prayer for them, um, we're going to eventually think of eternity and the end because each one of those people we're praying for are hurtling closer and closer to that day when they're going to stand before God and meet him face to face, right? So our eternal perspective and our praying for people are intimately intertwined, and they are in the prayers of Paul as well. I don't think that they can help but be. But then here's the question. If Paul's got this burning passion for people, and he's got this eternal focus, what does that actually lead him to pray for people? What, what does it actually make him pray for? And that's what we see in verse 12. What specifically is he praying for? The focus here 
as he prays for people with an eternal perspective, the focus is on love. That's what he prays for, is that their love would abound. And that might be surprising to some of us, um, because we might expect truth to be a bigger part of what Paul prays for for them here. Truth is a big theme in the book of 1 Thessalonians, because these are a people that, remember, Paul had to leave them early. He had to leave them early in their journey so that there's big gaps in their knowledge. So we might think that Paul, when he thinks about the end in mind, he's like, they really need some more knowledge, right? And they do. But what, he, what he's moved to pray for in light of eternity is actually their love. Maybe that shouldn't be surprising to us, though, because don't our truth and our love need to go hand in hand? I came across a quote from John Stott that I thought was really good. The truth is hard if it's not softened by love. But love is soft if it's not strengthened by the truth. Right? The truth is hard if it's not softened by love. But love is soft if it's not strengthened by the truth. And that love that Paul's talking about in verse 12, he envisions it uh, beginning on the inside with one another, right, within the church. But then he also envisions it spilling out to all. Do you see that in verse 12? In other words, uh, one theologian has said it's like, a, a, it's like the church, the people of God are like the school for love. It's where we learn love. It's um, the place where uh, this is our classroom for love. If we can't love each other here, with other believers who share in common with us the number one thing in our hearts, how could we have any hope of loving those outside? And besides, what, why would they want to have anything to do with us if they look at us and they see that we can't even love one another? But when you have this love for real, this Christ-like love, this love that Paul has in mind in verses 12 and 13, it stands out in the world. It's different from what they've experienced. It's something that turns heads because it's so unique. And according to verse 13, that love somehow establishes us in holiness, actually. And if we're walking through this text and thinking it through, it might raise the question, well, what is this connection between love and holiness? How could love establish us in holiness? Uh, I think maybe the answer is something like this. When we don't love each other, we're turned inward on ourselves. We become our own gods. All of our focus is just curved inward on our own hearts. We're on our own thrones. And when I'm on my own throne in my heart, when I'm my own God, there's no way around it. My holiness is going to suffer, right? In other words, my personal morality, even my private morality, is affected by how much love I have or don't have for those outside of myself. Um, so if we truly love others, we will dethrone ourselves. It will require dethroning ourselves from the throne of our hearts. And that will lead to increased holiness. And then if we know we are living holy, not perfectly, but the current of our lives is holy, if we know that about ourselves, if we're convinced of that because it's increasingly happening in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we can look forward to Christ's return that's talked about in verse 13, not with fear, not shrinking back from it, but with the anticipation, actually, of that great day to come. And when we're praying, picturing that return, we might pray for different things then. Maybe it's a diagnostic question for us. When you're praying for your kids, or when you are praying for that person whom you've introduced to Christ, or when you're praying for church leadership or the people in your life group, how often do you pray with the end in mind, with Christ's return at the forefront of your prayers, or even in the back of your mind, for that matter. The more we're praying with the end in mind, with Christ's return, 
uh, in mind as we pray for others. I think maybe we'll end up, we'll pray for different things. We'll pray more for love and holiness, like Paul prays for here. And we might pray less for things like safety and comfort. So we've seen, we've asked three questions today. And all three questions point to the same goal. The three questions, again, were how much joyful thanksgiving do we offer for the growth of other Christians? How connected are our prayers for people and our serving of those people? And third, to what degree are our prayers for others' growth informed by what's ahead of us? All three questions really aim at this same goal, that our prayer lives will be shaped by a passion for God's people. But here's the thing. We can't pray this way if we don't love this way. We can't pray with a passion for God's people if we don't have a passion for God's people. And it may be a surprise to some of us to hear that the Bible actually doesn't have a category for somebody who truly loves God but doesn't love people. That's not a thing. Actually, the New Testament, the book of 1 John, makes it very clear that if we don't love people, that makes it clear that we didn't actually love God in the first place. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says it. It's, it's the test of whether we love God or not. Do we love people? And so we might realize on reflection this morning that what I thought was a prayer problem in my life is actually one step back from that. It's a love problem. We might realize that our prayer problem is actually a love problem. So for that reason, I want to spend our last couple minutes this morning not giving you some practical tips on how to pray different words going forward, but rather I want to ask two heart examination questions that maybe will help us get at what might be in our hearts that might impede us from praying with this sort of passion for God's people. So you ready for this? This is just two questions to wrap up our time together to examine our hearts, to see what's going on in there that might stop us from praying with this kind of passion for people. One is this. Am I bitter at somebody? Have my interactions made my heart bitter? If I have resentment or bitterness that I'm harboring in my heart, I'm going to be slow to pray for people, right? Especially the people I associate with that bitterness. And more than that, even if I do force myself to pray for them, it's certainly not going to be with the kind of passionate love that Paul prays with here in this prayer we saw today, right? Um, so if I'm examining my heart and realizing that there's some bitterness, which actually is hard to see sometimes, right? Sometimes we don't, we don't want to believe that we're resentful people, but upon some examination, some of us have realized, and I've realized at times, actually I am in a season right now that I am harboring some resentment, resentment toward my wife or toward my coworker or uh, toward this person who got honored for something that I didn't get honored for, right? As long as that's there, that root of bitterness, um, what I need isn't just coaching on how to pray differently, pray different words that'll be more honoring to God and more loving. What I actually need is that God would break me of that bitterness in my heart. So that's one question. Am I bitter at somebody? And the second and final question is a little more abstract. So we might need to kind of go around it a couple times to show what I'm saying here, but I think it's something that many of us have experienced. I know I've experienced it many times, and I need to keep asking myself this question over and over again. Uh, here's kind of a way of going around the question in a roundabout way. <clears throat> is what I want most to be part of a revival, or is what I want most that real people's hearts would be revived? That's one way to ask it. Another way to ask it would be, is what I want most to be part of a healthy church? 
or am I really concerned with real people I know becoming healthy? Or do I want to be a part of a church that has a, is known for having a heart for the lost? Or would I really get excited to see real people's hearts develop a passion for the lost? Right? You see kind of what I'm getting at in those? It's, it's the question of, do I love ideas and movements, these big things that I could be a part of, more than I love the actual people involved with those ideas and movements? Right? Um, it's easy for us to sometimes love movements more than we love people. It's easy for us to love the glory that we imagine having being part of some big grand thing more than we love the good of the actual people that would be involved in that big grand thing with us. Um, It's possible that we would find as we examine our hearts that I don't really love people that much. I just love the epicness of my goal and people are a means to the end of helping me get that epic goal. I think it's worth examining our hearts in these two ways. Um, We can't pray with passion for people until we possess a passion for people. So let's pray this morning that God would break us of our selfishness and give us a passion for others, and we'll have a chance to pray more along those lines after today's service. Join me in prayer. God, that is what I want to pray this morning. Just that you'd break us of our selfishness in our hearts. That you'd help us to see the places in which we love self more than we love others. Where we love these delusions of grandeur more than we love others. Lord, give us a true, genuine passion for others that overflows out of how loved we are by you. And help that to inform the way we pray for people. In Jesus' name, amen.